HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio by young farmers for young farmers. And today we're talking to Nancy Grove. She is farming near Syracuse, New York, and her farm is called Old Path Farm. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to the show. Hello, Severin. Hello. Um, Tell me, what are you up to in this nice, beautiful day that you had to come indoors for? Oh, it is a beautiful day. Well, we are harvesting today and preparing for our last CSA share for the season, which we're going to be distributing on Sunday. So we pulled out some leeks and cabbage and are going to spray down a bunch of parsnips that we pulled out of the ground as well. So it's time for the um, root soup, root soup makers, delight. Um, t- tell us a little bit about why you, ne- well, your farm name is the thing that you talked about in, um, in your bio, and I felt like that was a nice, a nice place to start. Tell us about the old path. Well, um, the old path is very, uh, diverse, I guess. There's many different ways to say to express what the old path was. But when we look to the old path, you know, people always ask, why did you name it Old Path Farm? And um, I am interested in learning the wisdom and seeking out the wisdom of the older ways. And when I first started farming, I thought that sort of meant, you know, well, growing vegetables without chemicals. That's the old way. Or um, growing vegetables and having a farm that is less reliant on high technology and those are some elements from the old path and we do appreciate those for sure. I think another large component that has become more 
of a top priority, I guess, over the years is um, the interrelatedness of the neighborhood and the community and realizing that in the older times, people relied on each other more than relied on simply um, going to the store and finding everything they need for sale, um, but looking to the neighbors and asking for advice and borrowing and sharing. And um, those are some of the elements. But personally, you know, in a very, um, very much like reading a Wendell Berry, sometimes I feel like I'm in a Wendell Berry novel as I'm learning the history of who lived here and how they farmed and, and the next farm over, who were, who were their ancestors and what were they like. And the more I can hear the stories, the more I feel like I'm, I'm here for a reason. So you're here for a reason, but let's talk a little bit about where you are because, um, you know, eastern New York and central, central eastern New York is some of the nicest farmland in the country, um, some of the most beautiful soil that got scraped down off of Canada um, around your area, a wonderful ag community, um, very prosperous in the 19th century, which was um, also a time when there was a lot of social experimentation in that part of New York. Will you, will you tell us a couple of those stories uh, maybe of your neighbors or, or or kind of an introduction to the area? Sure. I live on a hill, and this hill can overlook the Sequoit Valley, the Sequoit River Valley, which then runs into the Mohawk River Valley. And as I look out, as I'm doing right now, I see a patchwork of farms and fields. And as you drive the roads around here, um, you see basically old farm after old farm after old farm. And nowadays, you know, there is the, um, you know, line of new houses that are have been, as the building lots have been sold off on the frontage of these old farms. But the old farms are still there, a lot of collapsing old barns. Um, my understanding is that in the 50s, and even when I was born in the 80s, um, there was a dairy, an active, um, successful, thriving, small dairy farm probably every quarter mile on every road. So even on my own road, there were six or seven dairy farms. Now there's one. And that's true in almost every road around here is that literally you'd see dairy farm after dairy farm after dairy farm. Now there is a 6,000 cow dairy farm on Route 8, and there's another 1,000 cow dairy farm across the valley from us. And they have the um, automatic merry-go-round milking machines, and the cows never go outside. And so it's a very different landscape at this point. Um, and it's it's a little bit sad. It's almost like um, you're driving around and looking at a looking at kind of a graveyard or a bunch of skeletons because you see all this old machinery and old trucks and fallen down barns in disrepair and no one's farming and the land is becoming, um, is growing up into brush and is no longer pasture and that kind of thing. So um, in, it, it's definitely tr- been transforming um, very quickly over the last 50 years. The other thing that really stood out to me, I love reading some of the history and the stories of this area, um, is that it was only 
a couple hundred years ago when the settlers first came here. And so I just can't believe how close in history are the native indigenous people who are living here, too. It's just not very long ago. Um, so that's part of the, the history, too. And even um, my neighbors have tried to recall, okay, who, who here has an Indian story? And some of them do. I mean, my neighbors, part of the reason I moved back here, maybe the biggest reason I moved back here, which is my neighborhood where I grew up, is that many of the people living here are third generation in their home. That's pretty rare in the United States to find. And it feels very special to me. There's a reason for it. I think that many people have decided to stay generation after generation. And it also, to me, enlivens the history. It, it feels like it's still alive because I can hear a story of somebody, so-and-so's grandfather who was a child, you know, on this very land that I, you know, in this, playing in the very stream where I'm playing now with my niece and nephew and where I played as a child. And um, looking at the old rusty machinery, it's not just a old piece of rusty machinery, my um, neighbors can say, oh, I remember when so-and-so bought that and what he did with it and when he growed that corn crop up on that hill and that was the year of the great freeze and blah, 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 on and on. So it feels like there's a story around every corner. It's, it's not a place of anonymity. So what's, what, I can imagine not, I mean, I can't even, I can't hardly almost imagine knowing everybody that well. What stories do they tell each other about you? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think the main f- sense that I get from the neighbors is that they're excited that somebody wants to farm. I think there's a little bit of a surprise at the beginning that it's a uh, young woman, not your typical uh, kind of studly young man coming back to take over the farm. but And also the style of farming is very different. We grow mixed vegetables and we market, direct market CSA. And that's very different for this area. As I said, it, it was uh, primarily dairy farm. And um, one example, well, one one thing that stands out is that, as I said, there's all this old machinery in hedgerows. And the hedgerows have kind of engulfed you know, all this rusty metal. Um, and a lot of it, unfortunately, really is um, has no relevance to our style of farming because a lot of it is for hay production or corn harvesting, et cetera. However, I, I can tell one story, which is when we started, there is this old shack that's just around the corner. And I knew that a kind of hermit man lived there. I mean, it was literally like an eight-by-eight shack that was covered in soot and, uh, you know, had no running water and all that. And this was an old man who had been a farmhand on various farms over the years but had become very old and um, just pretty much kept to himself in this shack with his dog. And I kind of knew that growing up. I mean, our school bus would drive by, and I we knew him by name. I didn't know him personally. And we would have, you know, our own childish stories about who he was and what he was about. But anyways, he's since passed. And um, the man who owns the land where this shack is said, hey, if you want anything 
from over there in that shack or, you know, around it, you're welcome to it. So I was very excited. So I got to go and explore this shack and see all this amazing old stuff inside. But out back, we found a um, potato digger. It's a single-row, ground-driven potato digger that was horse-drawn originally. It just uh, has a toe on it, so it was originally, but it has a seat on it, so, you know, it was originally meant for horse-drawn. And uh, we were excited. We said, hey, we could use this. We just tow it behind our tractor. And um, it was funny because as soon as we pulled it out of the weeds, all of a sudden, three different neighbors claimed ownership to it. That's my potato digger. Oh, no, I bought that potato digger in, in 1951. And, you know, this potato digger is probably actually about 100 years old. And, you know, we kind of just laughed at all the different stories of who, th- who thought they owned this potato digger, and we just said, well, we own it now because we're going to use it. <laughs> and whoever gets to, whoever's using it is the true owner of it. But anyways, this, you know, potato digger came out of the hedgerow, and it was entirely composed of metal, so nothing had broken or, or uh, degraded. Or, so we just put some grease on it, and we've been using it ever since. It works great. Sorry, I put on the mute button. Oh, that's really a happy story. You're not the only uh, potato digger I've heard about dug and out. Yeah. Um, it's a good strategy. Yeah, should, I always should... encourage people to check out their hedgerows, you know. We've we found some other things, some harrows and some discs and um, and also, you know, some, some set of uh, metal wheels to make a mobile chicken coop and that kind of thing. And, yeah, there's still some treasures to be had. Um, so you mentioned that you you came back to your community where you were from, and clearly there were very good reasons to do that. Uh, what were your What was the time away like? And in the and you were saying you know you've shifted some of the ideas about what the old path means, but can you just explain like that first year moving back? What What was that like? Um, the first year moving back, you know, when I would, uh, come across some people that I knew from high school or, um, maybe some of my high school friends' parents or something in public in town at the grocery store or something, and I told them that I was farming, (laughs) they'd kind of look at me with a cocked head, and it seemed like they weren't sure if they should feel sorry for me or happy for me. And I, I don't really get that reaction too much at this point. But when I first moved back, I felt like I had to justify to people, no, I, I want to be a farmer. This is, this is what I want. <laughs> um, but moving back to my, my uh, hillside here, which is a little bit removed from town, um, I, the first year I, had, I'm an, I was in a little bit of a different uh, field than I am now, and it was right by the road. And as I said, I do know the neighbors, um, probably about a mile in each direction from my parents' home. And when I was working in the fields every day, I could, I remember I got to the point where I could recognize the sound of each neighbor's car. And, you know, that's not too romantic because it's just like the sound of motors and tires on pavement. But um, just the fact that pretty much everyone that drives on our road is somebody that I know. And so the beginning of the workday and the end of the workday, I'd 
see the same neighbors pass, and, um, you know, sometimes they'd walk by. Everyone was interested in what we were doing. And um, also, it felt like uh, also an excuse for some of the neighbors to come together. Um, In the second year that I was here, we put up a greenhouse, and like four or five of the neighborhood men dropped everything they were doing and just worked on the greenhouse for about a week until it was finished. And it was it was really awesome. A couple of the wives, you know, prepared um, lunch for us so we didn't have to stop to make food. Um, and it felt like kind of like an old-fashioned uh, barn raising, but it was a greenhouse raising. And it was it was kind of spontaneous. It wasn't something we sought out. But once the neighbors heard what was going on, they all really wanted to pitch in and support support this effort. So this is a this is a beautiful story, and I feel like it it go, it goes right to a question that I've been confronting lately about essentially the social dynamics that are a, a part of a, a new generation coming in to farming, and particularly coming into a, a, an area in which in which this is the case in a lot of places in which the old farm families who've been there for, you know, years and years and who have, you know, built up a big inventory of equipment and Mm -hmm. have maybe changed their kind of farming that they've been doing, but that don't necessarily see their next generation uh, coming along with all the steam. And there's kind of either outsiders or new kinds of farming that are starting up. And I thought you might have some some thoughts about how, especially if you're not from the community, mm-hmm. how would you approach the existing community uh, to make sure that it's a uh, well that, that that there's shared values and that there's care about the place and that it's not a uh, an us versus you or uh, like a antagonistic yeah. relationship. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure I've ever heard of anyone really running into antagonism. You might run into kind of an apathy or uh, I don't really care what you're doing, but I haven't heard too much about um, antagonism. But I have heard from a couple of my friends who have started farms in this area and they weren't from this area. They would tell stories of, oh, and -and so-and-so down the road helped me weld this, and this person had a dump truck and helped me do that. And it kind of seemed like the people just, it's kind of like if you build it, they will come sort of thing, where people come to you. I mean, I can't speak from experience on how how to do it in a community that you're not from. And, in fact, when I <clears throat> have spoken to some other startup farmers at, or if they, they're not sure where yet they want to farm, I always advocate for people to move to their hometown because you don't realize how valuable the connections that you have are, even if they're not necessarily connections with a welder or a former farmer. Uh, it's just amazing how many, how many benefits there are to simply knowing people when you move to a community. And I realize a lot of people just plop down in an area where they've never been before. But I think um, just just doing what you're doing, you know, farming, and being open and honest about it, I guess my feeling is that 
people will come to you and and not being afraid, of course, to ask for help as as much as you can with whatever um, equipment needs or infrastructure needs or um, I mean, when we started, um, I didn't have a tractor or any equipment. I borrowed everything at the beginning. And I found that people were excited to lend and to help. So I think it's important to not be too proud to ask for help. You know, if you see that your neighbor has a dump truck and you could use it, don't be afraid to ask. Um, I guess that would be a piece of advice is, um, be eager to lend and be eager to borrow. I think our generation is used to owning everything we need and paying for our own solutions to our own problems. But I do think that it's it, it really is a mutually beneficial situation the more we can rely on one another. I think it's imperative to long-term sustainability. I, I, I agree with you a lot. Um, and, you know, speaking of sharing, let's talk about, your, you know, your marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, is there space around where you live for, for more young farmers to, to come in? Um, are there, in your observation of that area for the last eight years, could you talk a little bit about um, how the local foods marketplace has changed or grown or evolved? Yeah, um... When I first arrived, I did a couple farmers markets, and one one in particular. When I first arrived, I was the only person there who grew vegetables and sold them exclusively. It was a very vibrant farmers market with many vendors, but most of the the produce farm uh, vendors were buying produce in and reselling it. So it was a very similar product as you would find in the grocery store, but it was sold outside, and it was called a farmer's market. And many of the farm, some were farmers, and so they would sell peppers in May and June and July until their own peppers came in, and then they would sell their own peppers. Um, So it was, you know, a farmer's market in that way. But anyways, when I started and I brought kale and beets, in June, and I was so proud of these kale and beets because I'd worked so hard, um, I was very wholeheartedly received, and people were just so excited that somebody was growing fresh produce in this area. And since then, oh, there's been so many uh, new growers enter that market, and now it's pretty much entirely grower-only. So it, it evolved very quickly. I think there's definitely room for more farmers in this area. Um, I think this is a really wonderful... Upstate New York is is ideal, I think, in a lot of ways because it rains here. It's not um, like the Midwest. And it's not too hot, and you get winters off. Um, and as you said, the soil's pretty nice. Um, it's pretty hilly. You know, there are some flat areas, but... Um, you need to be able to work with hills um, and find kind of your nooks and crannies where you can. Uh, we're we're a small farm, so it's not a challenge for us to find enough land. But um, I definitely think there's room for more farmers. I mean, there are a lot of small farmers in this area, everything from cheese and dairy to fruits and vegetables and 
many different meat growers, but I always think that there's room for more. And I think that the customer base seems to be growing as the... We're experiencing some technical difficulties. Tune in for a word from our sponsors. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. I'm not sure where we got cut off, but I guess I was kind of, um, just to summarize where I think we got cut off, um, I think that there's definitely room for more growers in this area, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why growing food here is ideal. And I think in this particular, you know, small region of upstate New York, um, there's the customer base is growing and expanding as the producers are also growing and expanding. But I do think that it's, it's not a uh, growing by leaps and bounds. It's, it's not something like you see in the Ithaca area or the, uh, you know, Wisconsin area or something. It's much more modest than that. Um, I'm not sure that larger farms would do as well, you know, farms like you see in the Northampton area where you have several 500-member CSAs. Here, I think that farms do well to be smaller, like a 100-member or, you know, smaller diversified meat operations or smaller dairies and, you know, on the spectrum of what small diversified organic farms are. Um, but that's just my, my perspective on it. Um, you know, and this is, um, I'm speaking really specifically to the greater Utica area. I'm not really speaking about the Syracuse area. I don't really uh, know that area too well, even though they're an hour away. Around here, it seems like traveling 20 minutes is about the maximum of what people routinely travel. So, you know, traveling an hour for uh, marketing or for purchasing is not as common here as it might be in some other areas of the country. Well, it almost feels like there there could be a way, I don't know, it's funny, it's, an, it's definitely a technology impulse, but you know, that, that feedback that you're giving about what kind of scale farm makes sense there given the landscape and given what the market will bear, you know, you almost could imagine people saying, come to our town, we need a butcher, or mm-hmm. come to our town, we need someone to grow small grains mm-hmm. um, or oil seed crops because you know so well what's available and what's needed and, and what's and what's kind of happening or not happening or who's got what in their barns. and But I, I actually don't think we need the technology that we need for that. It's more likely to just be um, relationships. But I think it's a good tip for those listening who are thinking this, thinking this all through and trying to match their goals with a set of business plans and a set of farming plans that are going to match the place where they land. To really engage in a set of conversations um, with people like Nancy, who've been there for eight or you've been farming for eight years there. Yep, 
Um, so those are, these are the these are our kind of um, less still green, but but maybe less green of greenhorns, uh, who I think have a pretty real insight about what kinds of businesses would make sense to do. Mm. Um, one last thing before we go away, um, briefly, can you talk about how you dealt with this being very overeducated, um, and then uh, moving into farming and and maybe give a bit of uh, advice that you may have gleaned along the way? Um, Don't waste your money on college. (laughs) That's that's my advice. (laughs) Um, Especially straight out of high school. Um, I I feel that the current, you know, um, post-high school education is a bit of a tragedy insofar as it really narrow. I feel that it narrows people's um, possibilities for their future because most people are in a financial bind after college, and so whereas many of my peers um, have ideas and visions and dreams, they're not allowed to pursue them because they're in so much debt that they have to work for the man, so to speak, in jobs that they hate to pay off their debt. So, um, and that's, you know, that's not everyone, but that's many people. Um, Fortunately, I didn't come away from college with debt, which just has to do with my parents' financial situation. Um, However, looking back, you know, if I could have, instead of being funneled straight into college, which was just the, you know, no questions asked, predictable route for high school graduates in my my school. Um, if I could have instead, you know, had some life experiences, maybe had some apprenticeships or some other, you know, year-long volunteer, volunteer experiences to help me find what path I wanted to take then, that $100,000 could have been utilized to buy a farm, <laughs> buy land, or you know, further my, whatever my dream was, instead of um, being put into college, which to me just feels like a little bit of um, a waste of money. I mean, of course, everyone, there's wonderful experiences to be had in college, but um, it's a lot of money to put there. And so that's my biggest advice. If I don't know how many high school listeners there are, but um, I wish that high school students were given the choice of, college or try these different apprenticeships. See if you like these different career paths rather than getting into so much debt at such a young age. Um, I, I, I echo that thought and um, I think that given the direction our economy is going that those other career paths might provide a greater level of security over the long run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly and certainly you'd have the skills you have skills instead of just um, your little swivel chair. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're out of time. I really appreciate your coming on. I wanted to just give you a last moment to um, call out any of your favorite Wendell Berry books or um, agrarian history that has been inspiring to you for those who have kind of heard your stories and feel connected to that kind of an engagement with their community? Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, I, I guess my most recent Wendell Berry read was Helen Coulter, which I wholeheartedly recommend. I think the first book I read by him was Remembering, which was a shorter novel, both lovely, lovely books. Um, I really enjoy reading this book called The History of the Town of Paris, which is the town that I live in. And um, I guess I recommend people get in touch with their local historical society because for me, I find I find the stories to be thrilling. This book of the history of the town of Paris was published in 1888, so it's actually the history prior to 1888, and um, the stories of the bear hunts and the you know the the day the church steeple was blown down and the the taverns and the blacksmiths and all these um, 17th, 18th century stories to me really bring my home place and my homeland to life when I know the history. So I recommend, you know, check out your historical society and find out the history and be connected to it and realize that you're a continuation of it. Good idea. Well, that's enough for today. I wanted to remind our listeners that we have a Greenhorn event tonight at the Grange Hall in uh, Waylandsburg, New York which is right near Essex, across the lake from Burlington, Vermont. Um, Max Godfrey will be teaching us some work songs. At, oh, no, it's not tonight. It's tomorrow. Tomorrow is Wednesday, the December 5th. Um, so you could even come, Nancy. And on Saturday is Christmas songs and also a mixer in New Hampshire. Um, those of you who are in the South are, I'm sure, heading over to the Acres Conference in... Louisville, Kentucky, um, and those of you who are in part of the New England contingency may be going on Friday to the New England Farmers Union meeting. Um, that's a really powerful group, only two years old, that is working to support New England growers and represent them in the policy process in Washington, especially focused on sustainable and regional food economies. So that's a lot. Um, check out, check out. You're, this is a great time of year to be indoors and doing research for your next farm apprenticeship if you're between them and if you're still a city dweller and aching to do something rural. Um, you know, don't get limited that if you feel you're not cut out to be a farmer. There are many other ways um, to be connected to this wonderful uh, movement. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.